growth and awareness are the byproduct of content for me. Um, process, also very secondary. A shitload of what I do is manual. Um, and we know we're going to need to fix it later, and we know it's not going to scale. Um, but process is is like way far in the back of the mind uh, at this point in time. It's just create great content experiences and get people into Drift.com, convert them into the free program. You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Louder Than Words, where I have the great privilege to be able to hang out with some of the most brilliant people in in startups, entrepreneurship, technology, business, writing, uh, all those kind of things. So uh, glad to have you here. Uh, today, I'm uh, honored to be joined by Jess Ian Diorio. Jess, did I say that right? Yes, you did. You got nice. it. <laughs> it's because I asked her two minutes ago, so I was like, I, I got to get the name right out of the way at the beginning. Uh, Jess is formerly uh, of Acquia, where she served as VP of product marketing, and uh, she made the transition to a company called Drift um, earlier last year, um, working with uh, David Cancel and his team uh, on customer marketing and growth. Uh, so today we're going to talk to her about uh, that transition and you know some of the things that she's seen work and things like that. So Jess, thank you for for finally being able to get on uh, Louder Than Words. I'm I'm happy to have you here. All right, thanks for having me. I love the love the show. So I'm excited. So, so like I feel like we we come from or our industries are are kind of rooted in the same very complementary I guess theme. Whereas in so I'm I'm working at Litmus where. Uh, as far as email goes, I feel like marketers tend to optimize for search. They optimize for like on-page conversions. And once they acquire the email address, the optimization tends to fall off. And then it's like they set up automation, they spray and pay like, and, and that part's not as important, you know, because it's, you know, they've, they've generated the lead digit, they've generated the customer. Whereas customer marketing and a lot of the work that you're doing at Drift, I feel like is closely related to this. Like there seems to be for whatever reason, more, sex appeal in generating new leads, new customers mm-hmm. than there is in like nurturing and marketing to your current ones. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's good to talk with somebody like that. Do you, do you think that there's a hole in marketing strategies when it comes to like customer marketing and growth? Absolutely. You know, I think what you're talking about is that everybody really focuses on the short game, at least on, on the upfront marketing side and everybody's pouring money into customer acquisition and just thinking about that early stage, but especially for subscription businesses in the SaaS world, that's just not the whole thing. That you have to acquire customers, retain them, and grow them. And so to put you know, 90% of your marketing dollars into a third of what you're going to be measured against in terms of your company's successfulness just leaves a lot on the table. Uh, there are a million stats out there that showcase how much more expensive it is to acquire than retain a customer. But I agree with what you're saying. You know, people think too short term. They don't think about the long game of how impactful they should be. They could be towards renewals and customer growth overall. And sort of there becomes these walls between marketing and the rest of the organization, and they just take the upfront and then they forget about it. And then the quality drops off. The attention to am I saying the right thing to the right person drops off. So there's a lot missed on the back end um, that really wouldn't cost that much to just do a much better job and help retain customers. So there's plenty to dig into there, and I want to make sure we get to that later. But I wanted to to briefly back up and just have you quickly describe the path that sort of led you to the work you're doing today. Cool. Well, I actually um, I went to school into Ithaca College for basically a communication and business degree with some some writing sprinkled in there. Uh, it was called Organizational Communication Learning and Design, which means nothing today. Uh, anyways, I, I really loved that major because a lot of it was based in market research and figuring out trends in markets and then assigning technologies to problems within organizations. So you go out and do the research, you figure out, is there a technical solution to that problem? And then you make a recommendation. And a lot of the time I spent in school was consulting within the community, going out to different organizations who were having problems. And it was everything from the fire department to the local elderly, elderly home um, and the Visitor's Bureau, and we would just do these projects. And I just loved figuring out 
what was going on and how technology could be applied to solve that problem for that company organization. And so I then landed in Boston outside of college and worked at Forrester Research for five years, um, just shy of five years. And so then I just kind of doubled down on my market research background, helping all sorts of different technology teams get the research that they needed so that they could produce great content. And then I was like, eh, I was on the analyst path and I just did not want to be an analyst without having on the ground expertise. So I decided I really liked marketing, and that's when I made the transition into product marketing at a company called Indeca, which was a site search software company acquired by Oracle for a billion dollars. And then when that acquisition was made, I thought, oh, that, that's too big for me. I really want to double down and be really aggressive, and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to meet my goals at Oracle. So I went to Acquia and continued on that product marketing trajectory for the four years I was there. Um, and so I just really loved my time there. I loved continuing to be in that sort of marketing leadership role, but using market research at the root and looking at everything from trends in the industry and fueling product roadmap to looking at competitors and what they're doing. And so it all comes back to technology for me and um, using market research to figure things out and make recommendations, whether that's to an individual or to a company. Uh, at my, you know, coming up on four years at Acquia, I just felt like I had been there for two years as an individual contributor, and then I had been there another two years running and scaling the product marketing team from two to nine individuals. And um, I loved the company. I loved everybody I was working with, but I just felt like I had stalled out personally a little bit, like I had done what I was there to do, and it was time for a new challenge. And I have always been attracted to the idea of working in a startup and being in on the ground floor. And being able to operate from the strategic straight through the tactical level. So, so I, uh, I just happened upon this opportunity and was crazy, crazy about it. And I've been here since December. Yeah, so that's, it's funny that you, kinda, you have that pedigree already built into you of, of market research and finding out what the, what the customers are interested in. So that's a, a great place, I feel like, to be coming from, to be doing the work that you're doing. So I feel like you kind of had like that head start um, in, in, in starting that way, both in college and in Forrester, even though it didn't, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't pan out. Uh, but <laughs> I feel like that's if, if all marketers could start that way, right? Um, yeah, that'd be great. And, and you started to briefly touch on this. Uh, so, how did you how did you first get connected with you know with David uh, Cancel and the people at Drift? So I was um, I was just putting my toes in the job search. I had um, had my second child. I came back from maternity leave and was just starting to think, what do I want to do next? And I started thinking, oh, I'd like to go smaller, smaller company, just like I was just talking about. And all of a sudden, I got this outreach from the recruiter at Drift. Keith Pescasolito. And he's got like this, this velvet touch to his outreach where you don't even know you're being recruited. He was more like, oh, we're building a product for product marketers and I'd love to do a research interview. So I'm like, well, that sounds awesome. I'm going to get on the, call, on the phone. And, um, and then the more he talked to me, the more he just reeled me right in. And I had already known who David and Elias were. Um, but I didn't, I didn't actually know exactly that that was the product direction at that point in time. Um, and it's funny, I had been reached out to by Elias and Keith earlier in the year, and I just, uh, I ignored it because I just didn't, I wasn't in the place where I was looking at that point in time. But then it all came full circle. And I was like, okay, this is what they're doing. And, and now I, now I fully want in. And so I then started being aggressive with him. I was like, no, you got to get me in the door. How do I get involved? <laughs> and, you know, and I sat down with DC and we had our first conversation and there was no job opening, um, that I was looking at. I was just really wanting to have an exploratory conversation and, and we clicked. And then I came in and I met Elias, we clicked and, um, uh, yeah, that's it. How early was that? Because um, you, you, uh, Drift is over uh, 20 or so employees now, right? How early was uh, this? Not, yeah, not quite. I think we might be 16, 17 now. Um, but this was in mid-November. It was right around, right around the holidays, right around uh, Thanksgiving when we first met. Um, and I think December 7th was my start date. So it all happened pretty quick. Um, so before we go any further on Drift, like, can you tell uh, listeners who might not know uh, who Drift is yet what the company does? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So we are making it easy for companies to talk to customers, and that's the most simple way I can describe it. Um, but if we think about um, organizations who are challenged to know who their customers are and then have relevant conversations that contribute to a great experience and retention, I mean, 
It sounds simple when I say it, but it's really hard for a lot of companies to do. And I experienced this firsthand at Acquia. And especially in the software as a surface world, like I said, you have retention and growth as your as two of your three key things you need to report out on. So it happened, just like you said when you opened this conversation, that we would acquire a customer and then the attention would drop off from a marketing perspective. They would be served, they would continue to have support, but letting them know when new products were out, um, that was a real area of inefficiency, you know, not going to our customers first and getting feedback. Um, so um, Drift hits a lot of different problems. One is focusing on once you have that customer and you have them in your application, driving relevant conversations with in-app messages and chat. Um, so we want to help people get their customers using the product because the more they use it, the more likely they are to renew. But then we also have embedded net promoter score and custom surveys so that you can test the health but keep it all tracked in the same system. So you've got one system to talk to your customers about what's going on with products, onboard them, make sure they're using it, make sure they're satisfied. Um, and that's the core of Drift is really helping companies know, grow, and amaze their customers. Um, but we also have a solution that starts even earlier because you have to start somewhere and you have to acquire customers somewhere. So we have a separate solution that it's all integrated, but it is more geared towards the sales and marketing use case of customer acquisition, helping people bring people in through live chat on their website. So we're staying true to our roots, which is that we're a messaging company. It's just that we have one messaging application for the website, which is where you can talk to strangers and make them customers. And then the other messaging application is built within your product, whether that's a mobile or a web application. So continuing to help companies easily chat with, talk to their customers or prospects um, so that they can have a better experience along the way. Why was this so hard before? So like, obviously, every, oh, hopefully every product is, is, you know, is filling some sort of gap that doesn't exist, you know, and there's other similar products, you know, in, in intercom and things like that. But, you know, Drift has, you know, uh, a much different product roadmap. Um, but why was doing all of this so hard before? I mean, you've come from a background where you've worked in this industry for some mm -hmm. time now. Like, you know, uh, why was customer communication like before, before something like Drift comes along, like how are people currently doing that and why is it just not working? Yeah, I, I think this has to do, I'm going to kind of zero in on the SaaS world to answer this one. So when I was at Forrester, one of the early companies that my team was covering was Salesforce.com. So that was back in the dawn of SaaS and they really pioneered cloud-based software. And I think it's taken us as a whole... <laughs> world, a while to catch up to SaaS economics and what actually matters. So all of the focus was, all right, we're going to get this more efficient application out there. We're going to go ahead and disrupt all these other organizations who only serve licenses and on-premise. And that was the first movement. And it didn't. It took people a while to catch up to the fact that that was all about disruption and customer acquisition. But then they had all these customers who they didn't pay attention to um, because they're like, all right, we got them, we got them, we got them. They didn't realize, you know, that, that they really needed to pay more specific attention to the customers on the back end to make sure they were happy so that they could secure a renewal. So now you kind of fast forward to this time where SaaS applications are everywhere. There's probably 20, 30, 40, I don't know how many different SaaS applications there are per day that are coming out. So there's so much more competition for this new, you know, it's not even new anymore. There's so much more competition in the SaaS world. So now let's switch our focus. Everybody has to switch their focus to the customer experience and making sure that they're retaining those customers. So we, uh, you know, I think as a whole world, like we, it, we took a while to catch up to, and along with the pace of innovation, all these things were changing. And now is the time where everybody's realizing, oh, oh shit, <laughs> I left those customers hanging, and then they churned, and then it impacted my business significantly. So even um, like if you follow bloggers like David Scott, and he's he's one of the top people I go to when I'm looking for metrics around SaaS. Like he's just done a lot of publishing in the last few years around what metrics matter for SaaS companies. So I think that there has been technological change, innovation, a lot more SaaS competition. And now we all really understand the fundamentals of a good SaaS business. And we all understand that a third of it is customer acquisition and two thirds of it is retention and customer growth. So I think people have finally caught up to it's time to start paying more attention to the customers. Uh, but the innovation from a marketing technology perspective has not happened there yet. So that's why 
I don't know that it was necessarily hard to solve, but nobody was trying to solve it. And now you're starting to see companies like Drift and others trying to solve this problem of providing a better, better way for companies to market to and communicate with customers. Those are great points, too. And I think a lot of SaaS companies, um, you know, they, they, they have like these frictionless um, you know, uh, processes for, for signing up and getting started with the product. And it usually, you know, takes very little time to start experiencing like the, the, the utility of a product. But I think as well, there's also not much friction in canceling. So I think you see a lot of like retention and churn issues with a lot of SaaS companies. And because there is so much competition, I think you're right. I think, I think you're just naturally left looking at, well, if if it's so easy to churn and it's so easy to find somebody else that can possibly do something similar, then what's left for me to do differently? And it's mm-hmm. not it's not it's not writing you know a, a better blog post or or putting more ads out there. It's yeah, it's making that experience much better. So yeah, uh, and I, I think it really like it's it comes down to what you do too, because there are certainly SaaS applications out there that are frictionless to sign up, but you become wedded to them through their use case, whatever they're solving for, like at Aquia. It was uh, we had a low churn rate because people were hosting their site with us and moving it there was hard. The idea of moving it away was really hard. And then they were using all of these tools that we had built to help develop and, and launch and test their website. So their entire web operation was centered around using Acquia. Um, so it was easy to sign up. It was really hard to leave. And that's that's really what you want to go for. But a lot of companies don't haven't mastered that. So then you get left in this scenario of you really have to be on your game all the time with your customer experience. Right. It's like innately sticky, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's like a new CMS. Like you just, every, it's so hard to rip it off. Even most companies, like I came from the agency world and most companies, like they'd be unhappy with the, uh, their CMS or whatever it was, but they were just like, we just don't, we just can't move off of it. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have the, the dev resources right now. So yeah, just innately sticky. Um, so to, to move back towards like the personal realm, like you, you know, in Acquia that you just mentioned, you left this late stage, you know, extremely well-funded company to to join a startup like Drift, where oftentimes, you know, especially for parents, the demands can tend to be a little more, you know, intensive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, time intensive. So what were, and you did touch on this earlier, but what were some of the, the motivations behind your decision to to leave Acquia for, for a, a place like Drift where, you know, there might be more demands on your time and, and, and being a mom? Like, was that was that a factor? Did that play into your decision at all? Huge factor. You can't not think about that. It's like irresponsible parenting if you if you just think with, uh, hey, I love to do this professionally. I'm just going to go, and you don't think through what might change in your life, and uh, if you can if you can do it. So there's there's kind of a lot to talk about here. Um, it was talked about at length before I joined, and there was even a moment where I looked at David Cancel and said, I think I have a life stage, your company stage mismatch, and he said, No, that's not the company we're building. You know, this is going to be okay. We're going to make this work. Um, so, but leading up to that. Um, I did think about everything. I thought about the level of financing because Acquia was secure and good news, Drift is secure too. <laughs> so Drift <laughs> is an incredibly well-funded startup. So, so um, I, you know, there's, there's a level of risk I'm willing to take and a level of risk I'm not willing to take. And the risk I'm willing to take is putting myself in a position that I know is going to be incredibly challenging and um, betting on myself that I can perform. Uh, the risk I wasn't willing to take is a company that had no money. You know, I, uh, and that, that seemed like a losing proposition for me. So when I looked at this scenario of joining Drift as a young mom um, with a lot of demands outside of work, I really thought through, would I have the time to ramp up? Because it's, it wasn't just, hey, I'm a product marketing expert and I'm going to go take another product marketing role. I was looking at an opportunity like that, a different opportunity. But at the end of the day, I was like, I just, I know how to do that. I can do it in my sleep. That's probably the right life choice right now. But I'm, I just continually want to challenge myself and see what I can and can't do. Um, and so I'm always pushing the limits of, of what I'm doing from a career perspective. So, so then I narrowed in on drift. And then it really became this kind of back and forth between me and myself and I and my husband and trying to figure out what would the demands be? What would it look like? What would the daily, everything from, you know, the overall journey here to the daily schedule look like. Um, and I talked about it at large with D- with DC and Elias, and um, you know they kind of reassured me we're not building a typical startup here. This is not uh, everybody's connected all the time. Company, um, there is a ton of passion here, and I would call it this like it's tenacious. People are really aggressive about what we're doing here, and they're shipping product like crazy. Um, and I am connected a lot, 
but it's it's not gotten the way in the way of me being able to still be at home with my kids when I want to be and being attending to them when I need to be. Um, and so there's been a lot of a lot of room for me having to do this differently than people who don't have young children. How how big of a factor was? And this is almost a silly question, but how big of a factor was David Cancel uh, or DC as you as you call him? Because you know the back of his baseball card, right, is pretty mm-hmm. impressive, right? Like you know, ghostry, performable, you know, yeah. basically evolving the HubSpot product into what it became. So how big of a factor is it in seeing a guy like him and being like, you know, I'm going to buy into this, you know, regardless? I mean, like maybe 98%. <laughs> I was really excited about the product vision because I was struggling with that challenge at Acquia um, as, a, as one of the marketing leaders trying to get people to pay attention to customer marketing, get a customer marketing program off the ground. Like, and, and looking at across an organization of 750 people and how many people were touching customers um, along the way and nobody knew, it was just a huge problem. They couldn't, couldn't get a handle on it. And I was trying to work on that along with everybody else. But, but then I, you know, and then I looked at DC and I was like, okay, if I'm going to try a startup and I'm going to push myself at this life stage, I need to do it with someone who I feel like there is low risk because they've done it, they've been there, and they can, they can tell me what it's like when things are happening because they've seen it before. So I looked at him as like, all right, he's a pro. He knows how to do this. He was so successful at HubSpot. Look at all the other companies. Um, so I will have this guiding light who just knows what's going on and has experienced it. Um, and that reduces some of the risk too. So well-funded, amazing founding team, incredible product vision. I really went in thinking this is as low risk as a startup gets. And the, the highest risk I've taken on is can I find enough time in my daily schedule to play catch up in all of the discipline areas of marketing? Because my expertise is product marketing and that's one functional area. Um, so now I'm like, all right, how do I create this website in Squarespace and what's the deal with SEO? And, you know, I'm just <laughs> trying to figure out how to not spam people an email. And it's just, it's the whole thing now. And uh, that's a lot when you don't have unlimited time. So that's the biggest risk I took. And honestly, that's a struggle and I work through it every day. So and and so you're coming into a company like Drift at the ground floor, right? What are some, um, what are some levers that early on, you know, you're pulling to generate that early customer base, which is obviously mm-hmm. super important. And a lot of what happens during that time, as uh, you know, tends to be unscalable as well. You know, trying mm-hmm. to to get that first <clears throat> 10, 20, 30, 50 customers, whatever it is. Uh, so you know, what are some of the levers that you've found to be successful? Um, mm-hmm. you know, that many listeners can, you know, could probably right. take a lot of value from. What are some of the, the, the levers that you found to be really effective to generate that early customer base? Yeah, we have. Um, so I'll back up one second and say that we've sort of made a commitment to ourselves that everything we do is going to be because someone wants to hear from us. So we're never going to go out and buy lists and spam them. That's not ever going to happen. So we've made a commitment to the inbound style and we've made a commitment to creating great content that hopefully brings people to us. Um, so what we, what we tend to gear, like gear all of our efforts towards is producing great content. We've gone out and manually targeted all of the companies we want to sell to. Um, and we kind of batch it up into small target account lists and say, all right, this month we're going after these, these, these. And so we may do some retargeting or paid ads, um, to try and get to those organizations, but we're not buying their emails and just spamming them and saying, Hey, we're drift. Here's what we do. Um, so what we do instead is we find the companies we know are a good fit for us, and then we run our playbook. And our playbook consists of creating great content, often content that's highly shareable. So we do a lot of pieces of content that highlight people. Like we had uh, one piece of content on, I think, the 75 top women in product marketing. It was something like that. Massive shareability because every one of those 75 people who was featured wants to share it. Their companies want to share it. Um, and so that just blows up our reach from a content perspective and, um, and gets a lot of people coming to our site, which then we're, we're working to convert. We're working on all sorts of conversion rate optimization programs um, to, try to try to figure out what message works for which person. Um, but really, the, the playbook that works is produce great content that's highly shareable, make sure it's remarkable and that it's, it's the quality that we want that reflects our brand and that it's helpful. Um, and then continue to go out and promote it. Uh, we also, Dave, uh, Dave Gerhart, who's just the heart and soul of this marketing team, he runs a great newsletter, which is just, as he describes it, actually useful. It's not us promoting ourselves to marketers every week, um, but we have recruited product 
product marketing, product management, customer marketing, growth marketing, and others into this into this big list. And I think we're up to about 7,000 newsletter subscribers now. And every week we go out to them and we just share what we've learned that week about marketing because we're always looking across every possible venue um, to find tips and tricks for ourselves and we just share it back. So we're building a lot of good faith in our marketing, uh, which is we're, we're sending a valuable newsletter. We're helping make, make marketers' lives easier by sharing what we've learned. We're producing great content ourselves and sharing it back. Um, so I think that playbook is really, it's like a good faith playbook, and um, it's really endeared people to us. We get a lot of compliments on the newsletter. We get a lot of compliments on everything from our tone, um, like people really enjoy our welcome email, you know, so we've put, we've made a lot of efforts to make individual pieces like a welcome email or a piece of content, really high quality with a really friendly tone and very useful. And, and it just, people just pick it up and, um, and it brings them to us. And, um, so that's the main, that's the core of our playbook. So I actually get I'm, I'm I'm on that mailing list and I get those those weekly updates from Dave and the thing that that gets me about those is um, and I know he's he 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 might listen to this so uh, <laughs> DG I see what you're doing man like he puts the subject line in all lowercase mm-hmm. and I always feel like he wrote the email to me I'm like oh Dave's yeah. Dave's reaching out like he's he's asking yeah. me something um, but I, I never feel disappointed you know <laughs> after I open oh, there's it. <laughs> there's all sorts of those tips and tricks too I mean. He, both of us now, because I've learned from him, this is part of my own education, like that, that lowercase in your, in your, um, in your subject line gets, I mean, we're roughly 50% and up open rates, um, for emails, even when they're not the newsletter, um, which is really, really good. And then we're like 10% click, click through. Um, and you know, those are, those are pretty good benchmarks for emails that sometimes do promote our products. Um, and it's, it's not just the lowercase in the subject line it's lowercase throughout the email and it, it all just like people just stick with it because they think they're receiving a personal letter and, um, um, and they are highly customized. We send on average, our emails do not go to a bulk group. I mean, the other day I emailed 64 people the day before I emailed 113. So we're being really prescriptive about who we're going out to and why. Um, so not only does the, the actual execution of the email look personalized with the lowercase letters, uh, but it actually is highly targeted too. That's great. So I'm sure Dave's English teacher from high school would probably be disappointed, but I mean, that, that's <laughs> he, great that it works. Care. <laughs> it's, it's funny how those things, um, about results, man. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's funny how those things tend to work. And, and I hate calling them growth hacks because I, I don't think that's what it is. I just think we're, we've been so accustomed to that, you know, powerful, strong armed sales language in the past that when we see stuff like that, it comes across so much softer in the best way possible and so much more approachable. And I think if I had to guess, I would think that that's why that kind of approach is, mm-hmm. is works is because it just looks so different. It's like this, this guy just literally typed this up and sent it to me. So <laughs> it's cool that that works. And, and w- another thing that I noticed that you didn't really talk a lot about is you guys aren't, it doesn't sound like anyway, you're dumping a ton of money into ads. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you guys are well-funded. You could, yep. Yep. I mean, you know, there's, there's um you know and and this is the challenge I face is there's um two there's just a million different areas that you can there's display ads there's social there's you know there's ten different you know that's probably being generous social networks to advertise on there's yeah. retargeting there's so many different things mm-hmm. you could be doing right but it doesn't sound like at least right now that's a high priority for you guys why is that no um we just we we are dabbling you know there's there's a little test here a little test there but it's more about did that message work or not um yeah we we just haven't put a lot of money in we haven't heard from we have a lot of investors who are not investors we have a lot of advisors who come from the marketing world um and and they've been there and done that and grown companies and so we take what they've learned and we apply it to what we're doing here and when somebody tells us you're not going to get much for that we just we don't bother right now. There may be a time down the road where we're really, really looking at micro programs and trying to scale. Um, I think that will come. But right now, um, we're just trying to produce great content and stay focused on one thing, which is get people into our free trial program. Um, so once we get them into the free trial and we get the numbers that we want, which, by the way, we have daily targets for getting people into the free trial, um, then we figure out how we optimize down the road. But um, Right now, we're being—we're not spending a lot of money at all. My biggest line item in my budget is T-shirts, um, <laughs> because people love T-shirts. <laughs> we got some hats too, and then there—the second biggest line item was we bought um, ten Kindles, 
And we preloaded them with, I think, three of DC's favorite books because he, he writes often on his blog and he talks about how he employs learning machines and how it's so important to him to read because that's, that's the only shortcut in life is learning from other people's mistakes and learning from, from their experience. Um, so he talks about reading a lot. He, he talks about the books that he loves a lot. So we, as a demand gen program, out of this target list we had, we picked the top 10 people. Uh, we've only sent five so far because, again, we're like doing tiny little tests. But four out of the five are actually prospects. So that's an interesting little, little program. But otherwise, we're not spending a lot of money. We're just producing the best possible content we can. We're staying focused on the companies we want to sell to. And we're staying focused on our daily goals. Yeah, and just from my experience too, and and I really love and respect that approach because from my experience, I just haven't seen the result. It seems like the results that you do get from 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 advertising is sort of a drop in the bucket of, from mm-hmm. what you'll see from organic over time and and content. I f- I really feel like that catching yeah. catching somebody at that precise moment that they had a need so much to search for something and then they found your content. Um, is I don't think you could ever replicate that, even if yeah. you target the hell out of somebody and you're able to to get an ad in front of them on Facebook or retargeting. Mm-hmm. I still don't think you can replicate. Like you get the clicks, you'll get the engagement, but unless I, I don't think you can force that moment. And um, that that's sort of what I've learned is like ads are great for top of the funnel, and for some mm-hmm. companies they might be great for middle and, and bottom. I just haven't. I just haven't seen it. Yeah, so. I think, and people are really savvy now, and I think people know those ads are paid for, and I think there's sort of an immediate distrust. But it's it's at the end of the day, like, why would we spend two hundred dollars on a Facebook ad when we can post on Medium for free and get four hundred people coming to the site? You know that, and that's 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 so that's interesting, right? So there's been a lot of talk <laughs> about Medium um, in the past few years. Like, why would you ever post on there? Like, you're you're building a house in somebody else's backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what I've seen from it is like Medium is is almost like less of a content platform for me than it is like a method of distribution. It's it's mm-hmm. a social network, so like it has this algorithm built into it that can make your content go viral. That all of our blogs probably have. Um, you know, don't have that element to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, has there been any talk at Drift? Because you, you guys are very are, are very present on Medium. Was that ever a a concern of anybody's? Like, hey, why, why don't we just put this on on the Drift domain Mm-mm. and and drive people to our own backyard? Yeah, no, never. Um, so we've actually we've been doing a lot with Medium. And uh, when I first started posting there, I was like kind of dabbling with with some of the thought leadership content I would put on drift.com and it wasn't getting picked up there. It makes perfect sense. When I started writing about personal topics about being a woman in tech, being a young mom in tech, um, that content really took off. So we started to realize the way we wanted to use Medium was two ways. One is for us to all share personal journey stories and they can be related to our career and what we're doing and, and best practices, but it's not necessarily where we'd go and share leadership, like thought leadership about why you need to focus you know, why you need a better way to talk to customers. Having said that, um, we also spun up our own distribution called Customer Driven, and we cross-post and we pull other people's content in there. So we're like, we're hitting it from a couple of different angles where we're we're building Drift's brand by all the people who work for Drift. Matt Bellotti, our product manager, publishes a lot. Dave publishes a ton. I publish a lot. Um, David Cancel publishes a lot. So we all publish personal stories on Medium. We also maintain customer-driven where we, we have this channel. So we're building our brand around the fact that we're a customer-driven and customer-focused company, but not in an over-hit-you-over-the-head way, um, which I think is is not appreciated these days. Uh, and that's just not what we want to do. So, so we found two things that really work for us. When we have some really compelling, unique content that we definitely want to capture registrations for, that goes on drift.com. Um, that goes on our blog. And we and we do gate it. Um, we also found one little growth hack, which Dave just kind of came up with last week. Um, and he separately runs the Seeking Wisdom podcast, which is David Cancel just talking about his time in startups and what he's learned and his best practices. And we were thinking, all right, we've got a ton of traffic from Seeking Wisdom coming to our site. The podcast has really grown in popularity. Now, how do we start capturing some of that demand and converting it for Drift? Um, so Dave figured out this hack, which was to transcribe a portion or a lot of the podcast, put it on medium. Um, and then, and then he actually created this concept of a checklist. So the most recent published, uh, 
document was like why David Cancel won't hire product managers. Um, and it was a, a total clickbait title. He does hire product managers. We have one here. But it was really about kind of misfires in the past and what he looks for and that it's less about a career product manager than it is about the aptitude of the person and their potential. Um, and then he did a, a little subtle, like, if you want a hiring checklist, click here. That bounces out to a gated form on Drift. So we're really having a lot of fun and success playing with Medium in ways that that benefit Drift. Um, and so we don't worry at all about losing content there. We think a lot about how to convert it to Drift. A lot of cross-platform uh, mm-hmm. going on there, which is which is which is always super fun once you could figure out the right way to do it. Um, so that's great. Uh, and uh, so. So, I mean, this whole conversation so far has kind of, you know, led to this question. And, and that's like, you know, being VP of marketing at an early stage startup like this, you, you, I mean, you could potentially be wearing like many hats, right? There's recruiting, there's growth, which you've talked a lot about. There's the awareness side of things. There's building processes, which probably haven't been put in place yet. So where do you actually spend most of your time uh, on a daily basis? Right now, I'm spending most of my time on content. Um, that in in my mind is uh, is everything. We're not hiring a lot right now. We're we're planning to keep a lean marketing team. Um, so we're hiring engineers. But from a marketing perspective, we have needs here or there that we that we like to pull in contractors for. But we we sort of feel like we have our core of what we want to be working with this year. So we're not spending a lot of time on on recruiting. Growth and awareness are the byproduct of content for me. Um, process also very secondary. A shitload of what I do is manual. Um, and we know we're going to need to fix it later, and we know it's not going to scale. Um, but process is is like way far in the back of the mind uh, at this point in time. It's just create great content experiences and get people into Drift.com, convert them into the free program. So it all sort of starts at the top from from content. And doing things like this, talking to you and any other opportunity we get to extend our reach um, in another platform is great for the brand and will help Drift. But my primary focus is content and creating it myself and helping the team create great content. Yeah, and you've been doing that a lot. And I I see um, one of the pieces you wrote recently was uh, the piece on, I think it was featured in VentureBeat, but then you syndicated it to your personal LinkedIn, was the one on Zuckerberg and Marissa Mayer and how they mm-hmm. handled uh, paternity and, and, and maternity so differently. And I know this is kind of going off script here, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, what inspired that piece? Because I thought that was really impressive. So I'm really lucky. So, uh, you know, I work for, and I actually don't talk about my own job on here a lot, but, you know, working at Litmus, you know, great, very forward-thinking, progressive company, and um, just, you know, had my first child in early January, and I was actually, you know, t- was able to take a month off, um, which was which was amazing. Like I got to spend that month with my son and and, and my fiance, and and um, you know, I actually got yelled at a couple of times when I tried to answer emails, <laughs> and uh, they were like, "You're not going to get these weeks back with with your son. He's going to be, you know, walking before you know it, and you're going to wish you had these moments back. You know, shut up and get off email." Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you're seeing more of these more progressive forward-thinking companies. And then our article, you were talking about how Mark Zuckerberg sort of is, is you know, kind of pioneering um, that way of thinking in Silicon Valley and in tech. But, um, you know, what inspired that piece? Was it was a lot of your personal experiences or, 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 or other things? It is, it's a combination of personal experiences being completely checked into this conversation just because of my life stage and my interest in um, helping parents in tech and women in tech. Uh, so it was my experience being in the conversation and then getting a little pissed that Marissa just takes not much time. And I, I understand and I don't want to, um, I actually didn't create the title that was on it because <laughs> I think I think Boston O said I beefed with Meyer. I'm really not pro trying to take other women down, as I think that's part of the problem. Um, but I, I think that leaders of companies can create all the policy that they want, but if they don't take it themselves, they set the tone that people shouldn't. Um, and so a lot of the challenge kind of with regard to women in tech is that there may be a policy and they may or may not be encouraged to take it. Um, a lot of times there isn't a policy, but if they have it, they may take it, they may not uh, take all of it, uh, but then they come back and then there's a constant push-pull of life. And in society, we just generally have this predisposition that women are the ones who have to go and they have to do daycare pickup and drop-off and they have to do the doctor's appointments and it's less socially acceptable for men to take paternity leave. And if they do take it, it's like a week or two max. Um, and 
as all those things come up, because like the, the having of the child is a very short time period in your life. The, the kind of rearing of the child is your lifelong thing. And so the need for flexibility doesn't go away and only applying it to mothers and saying it's acceptable for them creates more of an environment where mothers are responsible for it and less of an environment where it's okay for fathers to take part of that responsibility too. Um, and what this in turn does is it creates this spiral effect of women being out more, having to leave more. And then you get things like men who just, they stay, they stay in the game. They don't take timeouts and they get promotions and raises and they're more physically present. And that equates to a sense of increased contribution over women and, and reward, reward, reward. Meanwhile, women time out, time out, time out, time out. They don't ask because they don't feel like they deserve it because they need the flexibility because they're carrying all of that load. So that's like a really long-winded answer to your question. But my, the reason I wrote that was because Zuckerberg set the example and set the tone and said, not only is this acceptable, but it's important to take time with your baby. And Marissa Meyer set the opposite. And I understand I'm not in her shoes and that's a difficult situation for her to be in with a state of Yahoo. But that was my point is leaders set the tone and the standard, not just the policy. And does, you know, it's funny when you consider like the, the, where each of those companies are and where they're headed and like do little things like that or you know, <clears throat> big things arguably is, you know, does that help contribute to some of the culture that maybe leads to success? And, uh, and I think it's, and I know we're like way off script here, but <laughs> I think when she first came to Yahoo, didn't she bring everybody, like they were, they had remote employees and she like, mm -hmm. everybody had to come back to campus. Um, so yeah, I guess she has a different, uh, she just has a different method of managing people. And, and you wonder if that has anything to do with the success and or lack of at, yeah. at, at, at any organization, not just Yahoo, but it's, yeah. it's an interesting debate that I'm glad people like you are, are, uh, are bringing up. So, um, but yeah, that was a great piece. People should definitely check out, um, on, you, you probably most easily find it on, on Jess's LinkedIn page. Um, so circling back more to, to drift and more specifically to my first question that I opened up with is, you know, how does a marketing program you know, starting today. So somebody listens to this podcast or they don't listen to this podcast and they know that they just, they have a customer marketing, customer growth or churn or retention problem. Um, how can a marketing program starting today, something prescriptive, like how do you start shifting some of your focus toward the customer? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you have this yeah. light bulb moment that, wow, we're focusing so much on top of funnel. Our retention is, is, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're basically swimming upstream here. So what yeah. are some things people can start doing to help yeah. shift that focus? There's a ton of stuff and a lot of it costs nothing. So um, I wrote a piece, which is like the next era of SaaS, SaaS growth is the go-to-customer strategy. So I, as a career-long product marketer, have always focused on go-to-market, which is about new customer acquisition by taking your same product out to new territories, new roles, new geographies, whatever, um, industries. And that's about new customer acquisition. But what we left on the table was this concept of a go-to-customer strategy, which is completely different. Um, and I ha and you can find that piece. I mean, we can look it up, but I actually have it out on SlideShare too with really prescriptive advice on what I think that means. It starts with segmenting your customers. So you can't do anything and be successful if you sort of just blanket your customers with, with, with spammy emails, which I'm guilty of in the past because I didn't know what I was doing. But what you really want to do is sort of like, I think about yoga, if anybody does yoga, set your intention. And your intention for your go-to-customer strategy starts with segmenting your customers into buckets that make sense. So if you're a SaaS company that may be, this is a free user versus this is our paid tier one, two, three, you may be segmenting your users by role, by marketing versus a technical role. There's a lot of different ways to slice and dice your customer base. But what you need to do is make sure you set, set those segments. And then part of setting your intention after that is, what do you want to do with that group? Um, some of those groups may be unhappy customers. And in that case, you need to set your intention that you're going to drive usage. You're going to get feedback. You're going to figure out why they're unhappy. You're going to get them into your product, using it, loving it, and you're going to improve that satisfaction. And that's a go-to-customer strategy in, in by itself. That's one specific one. Then you may have a set of happy customers. They just happen to be on the lower end subscription tier. And your goal is to upsell them. And so set your intention that you're going to take them on a journey, which is to evangelize um, the problem area and uh, identify with them and let them know that you solve that, that with your new solution probably. 
um, and try and get them in as a prospective customer for a new product. Um, so so that it kind of comes down to making sure you're segmenting your customers, putting them in buckets, running a quarter-long program where you're taking that bucket or segment of customers on a specific journey. And you got to make sure you don't put customers in too many buckets because that's that's a mess. So you have to just say, like, this this set of customers is going on this journey with me, whether it's just this month or it's the whole quarter, and I'm either trying to make them happy or I'm trying to create growth out of them. Um, and making them happy is a lot of different efforts by itself. Some it's just driving product usage. Some it's bringing into a customer advisory board. But there are a lot of tools available. But the point of the go-to-customer strategy is segment, set your intention, and take them on a journey and always set your success metrics and benchmark against them. None of that costs money. You know, A customer advisory board is the only thing I can think of there that you would really have to fund or if you wanted to do customer-specific events and dinners, other things like that. But really doesn't take a lot of money. It takes a lot of attention to detail and being smart about who you want to talk to and why and what value you're going to bring them. These are great. And it fills my heart to hear so much about email in that sentence <laughs> and those tips, you know, coming from litmus, like, um, people who, who care about email enough to, to, to sort of segment their segments and, and take the time to, to develop those relationships and, and nurture those like specific buckets of people. Like those are the, those are the people who are winning right now. So you could you could easily see why drift, you know, uh, is, is who they are and is, you know, on, on the road to, to, to basically own, you know, the customer relationship, which actually is my next question mm-hmm. is like, you know, taking a look at where you guys have come in such a short period of time. Um, and, you know, myself having some limited personal insight into, you know, the product roadmap at Drift, um, it's clear that it looks like Drift wants to own the customer relationship, right? It doesn't just want to be a messaging app or just NPS or just live chat, but it looks like you guys sort of want to own the customer relationship. So you generate a customer with, say, you know, your automation software, you know, you manage it and nurture it and, and everything else with Drift is... A, is this accurate? And, and B, can you talk about, you know, some of the, the more grander aspirations of Drift going forward? Yeah, um, I would say it's inaccurate just from the point of we are so focused on being friendly with other technologies. Um, so if there's anything we want to own, I would say it would be better communication with a customer. Um, and that means we want to be in charge of this messaging functionality and making sure that you're using messaging to your advantage, whether it's to acquire a customer or to keep the customer. But we really recognize that this is a best of breed world. We don't want to be that platform that tries to also be the CRM. Uh, we don't want to be the platform that's all the customer analytics and data. Um, we, we don't want to be the email marketing system. Those are not things we want to be. Um, we want to integrate with those companies and we want to make it easy for our customers to use whatever they've chosen with Drift for better customer communication. Um, and so, so that's kind of how I would answer that question. I think what we want to do is we want to, we want to provide the best value to our customers in terms of helping them communicate with theirs. Um, and that that will in turn give them higher retention and higher customer growth. Um, and that's where we want to be, but we really want to be friendly with other technology too. Great. That's, uh, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you guys are well on your way, obviously. Um, so Jess, this has been great, but I'd like to end sort of, uh, some of these episodes on a, on a, on a lighter note. Um, so a little bit more personal, <laughs> right? So, um, so first question is like, who is somebody that you would say professionally or personally or both, um, has had, you know, the greatest influence on you, uh, in your career? Um, hmm. I would say the, um, I worked at a company called Indeca and I mentioned that earlier and, you know, I, I've never been someone to go out and seek official mentors or ask people if they would be mentors, but I have received more mentorship out of that group of colleagues than anywhere else. Um, John Andrews in particular used to be my boss and he now is the CEO of a company called Select in Boston. Um, Jason Purcell I worked for. He's now the CEO of Salsify. Um, you know, I have a lot of people from that network that I can lean on that have helped me make the right career decisions um, and think through everything from those career decisions through aspects of my execution. Um, you know, I'm not going to, I could say Cheryl Sandberg has been influential because she has, um, you know, and any, any woman who writes at large about women in tech has been helpful to me. Um, but in terms of 
what has helped me get my career to the point that I feel it is. I think it was that, that former Indeca crew and, um, and my previous boss at Acquia, Tom Wentworth, and the CEO at Acquia, Tom Erickson, and the CTO, um, Dries Breitert, have all played a heavy hand in championing my success and making themselves available to me. And, um, and now that is continuing with David Cancel um, today. Yeah, not a bad group. Not a bad group nope. to surround yourself with. <laughs> and so last, um, you know, I think there's a lot you can tell about a person by what apps are on their home screen. So, uh, so yeah, what, what apps, and this could be just like ones you find most helpful, but what apps do you have like on, on your home screen, on your, on your phone? Oh my God. Well, Expedia, Yelp, um, Yelp, wow. <laughs> Instagram, I just like to go open table, uh, my Slack app for sure. I mean, um, medium, these are Starbucks, <laughs> LinkedIn Pulse, which honestly I've not used. <laughs> I don't even know what goes on with that. <laughs> Deleting it as we speak. Google, Google Hangouts for whenever I have to do a little video chat with the little ones if I'm out of town. Uber. Uh, Amazon Alexa is probably my number one right now, to be honest. Um, Audible. Because who has time to physically read a book? I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you do. With these two I little ones. To. I, I try to. It's been hard. I know. Yeah, it's been hard. I love to I read. It's just not, I don't have a place to physically read anymore. And uh, alternatively, I have two hours in the car every day. So Audible has become my, my friend. Uh, I'm pretty sure my, my son knows when I'm doing something recreational for myself because he immediately starts crying. So he's only, you know, 12 weeks old. So um, <laughs> he just immediately knows. He's like, oh, you're reading? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, then oh, we you have can, your phone out? I'm going to try and grab that. <laughs> then we can hang out right now. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's been more difficult. I try to, but it's been more difficult. But uh, great. That, that's, that's a good list for, for anybody to go check out. Uh, Jess, this was, this was a lot of fun. I was so glad uh, I was you know, finally able to get you on here. Um, this was probably the most prescriptive podcast we've had so far, so I might not even publish this. Um, I'm kidding, uh, but but thanks for <laughs> I was coming. Like, it's funny. I was like, that's all I write. I write prescriptive stuff. I don't really like fun stuff, and I don't even know ever know why people just pick it up. But turns out a lot of people don't do prescriptive stuff. Yeah, no, they don't. So it works. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on and sharing you know uh, your story with us. And uh, yeah, this this was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. And to all the listeners out there, thank you for for coming in to listen. And uh, be sure to join us soon because we'll be back with more guests. Thanks, everybody.